0: And I'm not banking on that as being what gets me through the rest of my life. I'm not banking on a block of agricultural land as being what allows my children to survive. Like, I think that there's other things we have to give our children and learn.
1: Welcome to the 294th installment of Ear to the Ground. The Land Stewardship Projects podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. For many farmers in this country, owning the land they raise food and fiber on is a primary goal. But for farmers who are just getting started out these days, owning those acres is often simply not an option. Sky-high real estate prices, among other obstacles, are making land access a major problem in agriculture. That's become clear during the more than two decades LSP has been offering its Farm Beginnings course. This program provides participants training in holistic planning, business management, innovative marketing, and goal setting. It also sets students up with mentors who are already established in their farming enterprises and have valuable insights to share. It's been a very successful program with around 1,000 graduates to its credit in the Minnesota-Western Wisconsin region alone. It's become a national model for other community-based beginning farmer programs. However, many wannabe farmers run into a brick wall upon graduation when they begin seeking to purchase or even rent land. That's why in recent years, LSP has been working with other groups to investigate land access options that don't rely on the traditional individual owner model. And Farm Beginnings graduates themselves are coming up with some creative ways to get access to land. Take, for example, Josie Tropel and Arlo Hark. Since graduating from Farm Beginnings in 2019, they've been operating a kind of decentralized sheep grazing operation, that does not rely on them owning or even renting land. Throughout the growing season, they rotate their herd of around 120 lambs and ewes amongst a series of solar arrays owned by various entities in southern Minnesota. To the solar industry, those sheep represent a way to manage undesirable vegetation and promote the kind of ground cover that makes the panel more efficient, all while building the kind of healthy soil that manages water better. They're also living proof that solar production and working farmland are not mutually exclusive. An important message to convey as rural residents raise concerns about how much land panel arrays could eventually occupy. To Josie and Arlo, who are both in their late 20s, solar grazing offers a way to overcome one of the biggest barriers beginning farmers face access to land. They see it as a way to not only raise meat and wool profitably with minimal overhead, but to create a model for farmland access that's not anchored to individual ownership. And given the key role reintegrating livestock onto the land, can play in building soil health, the couple feel that such a model offers a way to have a positive impact on as many acres as possible. Arlo grew up on a hobby farm in Northfield, Minnesota, and Josie's family raised beef and hay in southern Washington, where she grew up. The past few years, they've been providing grazing services to vegetable farms and orchards looking to manage and restore their soils. But it's the forage provided under solar panels that seems to offer the most potential for expanding their business, which is called Cannon Valley Grazers. In a sense, Solar arrays are ideally suited for rotational grazing of sheep. They stand 5 or 6 feet off the ground and have perimeter fencing around them. The panels provide shade for the animals, which reduces heat stress and water use. Depending on the ground cover, a group of roughly 100 sheep are able to service a 1 megawatt array, which is around 5 to 7 acres, in less than a week. The solar arrays Arlo and Josie sheep graze range in size from 5 to 20 acres, and the grazers charge for their services by the acre. They winter their flock at Sharing Our Roots, an incubator farm near Northfield that supports emerging and immigrant farmers as well as farmers of color. There's strong demand for the lamb they sell, and they've built up a customer list that includes restaurants and food co-ops. About a quarter of their income is generated from lamb sales and Josie is working on developing a value-added wool company. I recently talked to Josie about this decentralized farming model and why they think it provides much more flexibility to experiment with different enterprises. She started our conversation by explaining that avoiding a land mortgage isn't just about economics; it's also steeped in some deep ecological and social justice beliefs as well. You really have, like I said, have been adamant about that. You're not going to own land. That this is this is a way for you to pursue your farming dream uh, without owning land. Can you describe that kind of that philosophy behind it? It's not just a it's not just a purely ideal. It, it, there's some economics that are based on it but also it sounds like it, it fits into kind of your, your quality of life there's a lot of things that go into that uh, that I think I find that really interesting
0: it certainly is like I think it's all three it's ecological, social and economic because it does make sense from an economic standpoint for us to not own land right now um, when it comes to ecological I think we can make a bigger impact while wow, we're not just in one space and then From a social standpoint, I think, yes, it's ideal in its its ideals or its values, um, but I think the context in which I'm coming at it from is pretty deep and rich. And, you know, I have some family that came here as grazers from (laughs) Europe, as grazers, grazing culture, and so it feels really deeply rooted in who I am and my people, but, you know, there's this other flip side to it, which is that there's a lot of harm done <laughs> on this continent yeah. uh, in that period of time in the late 1800s. My family did access a lot of land for sheep grazing in South Dakota because of Homestead Act. And my family was doing large <laughs> cattle drives into Canada and, you know, farming right up on the Yellowstone River. And so, or ranching on the Yellowstone. So there's this other context that I also come to it where it's like it's less about guilt and more about, well... How do I want to relate to this land and indigenous communities and immigrant communities and um, yeah, there's a lot there, and then also just deeper context from Europe too, and what I was able to learn from being in Astoria, Spain, and um, the idea of usufruct right rights and you know using a space when you need it and. When you age, you don't need it anymore, <laughs> and somebody else gets to use it, and you're not acquiring cash value on that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you're not running into that situation, like you said, in however many years, 40 30, 40 years. Well, okay, now who are we going to transition this land off to?
0: And I'm not banking on that as being what gets me through the rest of my life. I'm not banking on a block of agricultural land as being what, allows my children to survive, like I think that there's other things we have to give our children and learn um, rather than just economic value.
1: Is that tough though to even, you've been thinking about this a while, but to get, when you first started thinking about farming Mm -hmm. as a career, to get over that, that that's a, man, that's so American. In the <laughs> American DNA is to own that land, especially in the Midwest, in a farming area.
0: Yeah, I think that like when I really first started thinking about farming, I thought a lot about my grandparents' farm, which is sort of used in a very extended family, four-generation way, in which we all get to be in that space. And it is co-owned by the eldest generation and the second eldest generation. And I thought about that space being the space I would farm, and then I kept kind of running into some things of, like, well, (laughs) it's really hard to live in the West Coast right now from an ecological standpoint. And I also thought a lot about the Cowlitz uh, Indian community and tribal community that's there. And, you know, there's there's other ways we can transfer that land as a family that's rooted in our values. I think that, like, I think there is sometimes this, like, escapist mindset of, like, well, it would just be easier if I could just have my own little place where I didn't have to c- communicate or interact with anyone else. And that's, I think, what that is sort of rooted in a little bit. Yeah. But from my experience at sharing our roots and that 100 acres, like, I've had hugely impactful relationships built in that space where, you know, there's different people coming from different corners of the Earth that get to be in the same space and gain a little bit of that sense of, like, sovereignty that, you know, they get that connection with Earth. but you don't you're not just going to escape
1: (laughs) talking you and Arlo that's the sense I got was this model requires a lot of communication writing up good contracts communicating with the folks getting that text maybe uh, when you don't want to get it saying oh the sheep are tangled in the (laughs) there's a lot of communication you can't just kind of do your own thing and, and not communicate with anybody for a week or whatever
0: yeah, I like at sharing your roots, which is sort of like our home base right now. There's just a lot of communicating with the other farmers that are there um, on a farm-to-farmer basis, but also with some staff and, and just visitors who come to the space, too, yeah, yeah. for sure.
1: Well, one kind of financial benefit to this model that you talked about is, so you are, through Farm Beginnings, you were able to brainstorm a lot of different ideas about how you would use a certain resource. In this case, your resource is sheep. It's that herd of sheep rather than a piece of land. So you're thinking you're know, you young and you've got a lot of good ideas. So this allows you maybe a little more flexibility since you're not, if you say, well, maybe we could invest some, some, uh, put some financial resources into this enterprise rather than, well, yeah, but except we gotta make that mortgage payment. So it gives you a little flexibility maybe financially.
0: For sure. Yeah, I think that like the wool, value-added wool is an example of that where like I've spent a good part of a year and a half thinking with some creative folks about like branding and also literally bringing my wool to processors and getting it processed through the various steps. And I've been able to just kind of like hold on (laughs) that investment a little bit and try things out and experiment and learn a lot. But I haven't like... Yeah, I haven't had to worry about a mortgage payment, yeah. <laughs> which is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah.
1: One of the things just with working with the solar companies is you guys says that over the past couple of years you've got a little bit better at kind of making this more attractive to them because it's not a big thing in the upper Midwest yet. Apparently it's a big thing in the East Coast, fairly big thing, and in the South a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Not a huge thing. You guys are kind of pioneers in this area here. But one of the things you've gotten better at the past couple of years is kind of selling the companies on that this this will benefit you. It will cut down on your mower costs, you know, uh, your other maintenance costs, and, and won't do damage to the facilities. But also, and I think this is a really big one, there's been a little pushback in rural areas against solar arrays because it's seen as taking land out of production, farmland out of working production. And so... That's, I think, you play an important role in helping them, in helping kind of counter that argument. Hey, there can be, it can be under solar, it can be producing energy, but it also can be producing food kind of thing.
0: Um, And I know there's other farms, you know, across the country trying to experiment with vegetable production on solar sites, too. And there's also people doing raising bees, you know, keeping bees on solar sites. But um, certainly, like, you know, a great example of how this works in action is, like, when we're down in a region, say, the Driftless region, grazing, you know, part of our values that we want to live our life is that we want to build in, like, rest and relaxation. So we go fishing. (laughs) Our love fly fishing. And just while we were down there the last time, we ran into three different people, all of whom we get, who are local farmers, that we get to talk about, what we're doing and they get to see what we're doing it's a really interesting way to connect with people like again it's communication and there's a positive piece to that and and I don't think that those farmers are necessarily just seeing it as solar these big pieces of metal are going up on the land you know there's this connective piece there which can't necessarily happen without folks like us doing that talking and connecting
1: part of your overall goal too isn't just How to make this financially viable, but you want to have a positive impact on the land, Mm -hmm. the the water and the soil quality. And there's been a lot of good information coming out recently about not just rotational grazing, but grazing under solar panels, how it can benefit pollinator habitat as well as soil health, that kind of thing.
0: Um, Certainly the soil health practices, um, principles of soil health apply to uh, solar sites as well. Um, And oftentimes these are sites that, you know, farmers are taking out of production because they're not productive, right? Like they are coming down to topsoil or they're super silted in and they're more wet spaces. Um, So there is a big opportunity, right, for them to come out of cropping systems and go into energy and pollinator and uh, sheep. Like that's great. Like think about... Uh, is a threefold benefit so um, yeah and I my my hope and intention is that um, other farmers can see how this is beneficial to their landscape and I really do want to learn more from farmers who maybe lease solar sites or farm right adjacent to see like what kind of effects have you seen because I do want to learn about um, what the effect has been on their farming operation of solar going in and then also potentially grazing those sites too. Yeah,
1: It's kind of a lot of things coming together. It's almost a perfect storm in that the lightweight portable fencing technology has gotten so much better. It's gotten a little bit more affordable. We have a lot of solar arrays going going in, uh, particularly here in Minnesota, but uh, around the upper Midwest. Then we're also seeing more folks like you who are saying, you know, we don't necessarily have to have access to land. We can uh, move the, the 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 livestock to the land, and somebody else can own, be paying that mortgage on it. But the other thing I think that's really important is, the, and there's been advances in rotational grazing and adaptive grazing and all that. But the other thing that I think that's that's kind of there's the local food movement. There's more demand for local meats, which I know you guys have benefited from. But I think the other issue that's that's really for beginning farmers like yourselves who are able to use adaptive grazing to improve what would be considered marginal farmland, is you don't need something with a high corn suitability rating. You can go in on some rough ground. Like you said, a lot of these solar rays maybe were already being put on rough ground. So that's an important piece, I think.
0: For sure, yeah. And I think from the get, like we've never had a perfect prime pasture for our animals we never have like whether it's been space that's overgrown or has been previously grazed and probably needs to reseed or something that's getting established no matter if it's on a solar site or not we've always been in these sort of like stranger scenarios and that's honestly contributed to our breed selection to really narrow in on a breed that can gain and do well and stay really healthy on these types of spaces. Because um, they're not ideal and they're not prime whatsoever.
1: <laughs> well, you just you mentioned something, right? You were in Spain, in a mountainous area of Spain, and kind of saw people utilizing not prime land to make a living, kind of.
0: Yeah, you know, there's always been people who have been pushed to different areas um, that are not prime spaces. And then the extreme of that is people being completely displaced. But for some people, maybe more peasant culture, you know, people who have to work within their means and less productive spaces yes and that's the example that i got to see and live and feel in spain um in the mountain culture there
1: you have any advice for somebody who might be look not it doesn't have to be specifically solar grazing or whatever but this kind of model where it's decentralized and any any tips for i know you're kind of just getting hitting your stride this year but you've learned some hard lessons i know yeah. already
0: yeah <laughs> I think it's really mostly about relationships, like whether you're going to be doing it for pay or just for easier land access, like whatever the exchange looks like, it's going to involve a relationship. And um, so that's super key is being able to, yeah, put relationships first and think about who's in your network or, you know, even if it's just somebody you just barely know or you think that seems like a nice person or they're another farmer and they feel like part of your community like it's likely that they might be interested in collaborating so even if it's on a super micro scale or even say like with ducks or you know chickens like whatever it could be i think that there's a potential and animals deserve to be in much of the landscape and they're not right now yeah
1: well that's a good point you reminded me of is through farm beginnings you were able to network with a lot of folks Uh, that that was sounds like it was a really key piece of the class
0: for sure yeah Uh, with other farmers who were you know beginning and emerging and then also just how we got into farm beginnings was through farm relationships that we had built up
1: and you were able to kind of you had a a little bit of a rough idea of what you wanted to do coming in but it helped really solidify what you really were going to zero in on because that happens a lot people have so many ideas Boundless energy, they think, and then, but it sounds like it was able to help you solidify your ideas a little bit through the class.
0: Certainly, yeah, it really helped us narrow in on. Oh yeah, maybe we spent a few years doing vegetables for other people, and we don't really want to do that ourselves. <laughs> you know, we're like, well, we could try this other thing, but it really did help us narrow in on a specific enterprise and get good at it. And now we're getting good at that first one, yeah. and we're getting better at it. And we're able to kind of begin to build a couple other things. So.
1: Yeah, you said you learned what you didn't want to do, maybe.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> For more on Farm Beginnings and how to apply to the course, see farmbeginnings.org. Or you can check out the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode number 294 at landstewardshipproject.org. On that page, you'll find a link to a land stewardship letter profile on Josie Tropel and Arlo Hark. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore@LandStewardshipProject.org, at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendell, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.